0: Hi everyone, and you're very welcome to Reinventing the Next Chapter, a podcast where I speak to women who either through choice or through circumstance have had to take a step back, re-evaluate their lives and make some powerful changes. I'm your host, Elaine Ryan, Life Career and Relationship Coach. If you're feeling stuck or not where you thought you'd be in life, my hope is that these stories will give you the inspiration and more importantly, the motivation to take the first step towards reinventing your next chapter. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 12 of Reinventing the Next Chapter. Today, I'm joined by Emer Macdonan, who is User Experience Lead at the IMF, which is a very elaborate title, and I get her to expand on it a little bit more. And Emer is also my second cousin, so there's a family connection there. So, Emer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much indeed, Elaine. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's great. And you are you're all the way in Virginia.
1: I am. I am over in the States right now because the IMF is headquartered in Washington, D.C. So I'm in what's referred to as the DMV, which is the District of Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, Maryland and Virginia. And it's kind of the commuting area. So just across the river from D.C. Great.
0: Right. So I think you're my first international guest. So, so Welcome. welcome. So, do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself? For sure so I like
1: you uh, like you said, I'm currently at uh, the IMF as the um user experience practice lead there, and previous to that, I was in Volkswagen for nearly three years. I was the senior user experience and creativity lead there, and they are also headquartered in Virginia, so that was a really fun time working in automotive. And prior to that, I was a consultant for six years across two organisations, which is probably where I learned the most that I've learned in my career. Uh, consultancy will definitely teach you what you a lot, and also teach you what you don't know. And so that was a uh, that was a real deep dive. And before that, I spent ten years at the BBC, which was a, a very fun time and probably the best years of my life spent in London. So. Um, I've been all over uh, a little bit. After I left school, I was uh, I was desperate to travel. So it was a case of getting out and uh, finishing up university and going and seeing the world. So I've been to Japan. I lived there for four years. I've been in London. And then I came from London to uh, the US and I've been here since 2016. So uh, it's been an interesting
0: international time <laughs> yeah, so so lots of countries lots of different jobs so when you were younger and when you grew up in trim what did you think your life would like
1: oh my goodness feels like so long ago <laughs> <You know laughs> feels it like, feels like I've lived like two lives since then when I was growing up in trim I think I have always sort of been artistically inclined my mother is a painter and uh you know she's extremely talented and very crafty and it was the only thing I was really decent at in school, <laughs> but I always thought that I would be a photographer. Photography was one of my, uh, one of the things I really enjoyed. And then it sort of became uh, after the CAO, the Leaving Cert and the CAO, the Leaving Cert, which I still have nightmares about. Show me an Irish person <laughs> who doesn't have retrospective nightmares about the Leaving <laughs> Cert. I'll show you a liar. But uh, yeah, that was pretty stressful. But the going into the CAO system, I was accepted into a loan where I uh, there were and I learned graphic design, which is how to monetize being creative and artistic because <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was that uh, that needed to happen. But I, I always thought that I would be a traveling photographer, a type of, you know, I always was very interested in those types of camera people or photographers who were on the scene at news scenes and things like that, you know, journal, um, photojournalism was really
0: what I was hmm. interested in. So Sue and Ted Lone, um, you did graphic design and. What was your next step after that?
1: Well, next step after that was it was a three year diploma that I did. And thereafter, I did a bridging course to get accepted for the final year to attain my degree in uh, the University of Ulster in McGee, which was fantastic fun. Um, if you haven't been to Derry or indeed gone to university in Derry, I highly recommend. Mm-hmm. It. And thereafter, due to my degree score, I was awarded an uh, European Social Fund grant to continue to do my master's. There, so it was a twelve-month masters. It was a, uh, it was fairly hard going, very, very difficult uh, to do. And at that time, it was full on. But stage achieved it, graduated, and at that point, I'd been six years in university. And when we were small, my mother had actually moved us out to Israel, and we lived there for two years between eighty-three and eighty-five. And so I always had a bit of a travel bug anyway. After that, we moved to Trim and lived there my whole life. But when I graduated in 2021, I was like, I have got to just travel and get out. But of course, I had no money, not a a bean to my name. And so I uh, applied to the JET program, which is the Japan Exchange and Teaching program. And essentially, it's a diplomatic exchange where they bring People from Western countries, uh, English speakers, out to bring the gift of English to Japanese uh, young children and uh, primary school and high school children.
0: I remember hearing about it in UCD, and I was kind of big into traveling and did Erasmus and stuff as well, and have been considering doing something abroad. And just the thought, Japan to me was just too. Baron, I think I went to a talk on it and I just found it so overwhelming, the cultural difference and everything like that. But I know a couple of people that did it and found it amazing. And actually you're the third person recently that I've had on the podcast that has been raving about. It was the most insane experience ever,
1: in a good way. In a good way. And everyone felt the same. You're going where? <laughs> you couldn't be going further if you try if you went into outer space. Like it's <laughs> it was a big change, but I adore change. I love change, and I embrace it, and I look forward to it. And actually, getting a mortgage made me nervous because I was like, "Oh God, this, this, you know, is it's a limiter of change. You know, you're in it now, and you have it, and you're you're stuck." And because I just I love to change it up in terms of like uh, where I live, what I do, uh, the people I'm around, the cultures I'm around, because I think it it just really shapes who you are and who you become. And I'm a huge believer in exposing. Our children, my, my child, anyhow, to loads of different cultures to, and, and to make him embrace change because it can be so scary for people, you know, but I personally
0: adore it. And do you adore it as a result of having made so much changes or is that something natural within you?
1: I think it's maybe because I've never had a bad experience. I've only ever grown as a result of change. Like I moved to Israel when I was six. And myself and my sister were fluent in Hebrew when we moved back two years later. Like my mum used to have to bring us to the bank and sit us on the counter to translate her transactions because while she could speak quite good Yiddish, um, she was the learning curve when you're older for Hebrew is difficult. Whereas myself and my sister absorbed it like a sponge. And then when we came back to Ireland, uh, I tried to learn Irish. I was way behind and it was, uh, it wasn't exactly a great experience, <laughs> but then moving out to Japan, it was, Being surrounded by a language is it just resets your brain in a certain way. And it just, you know, appreciating how people live their lives and what it is they do differently and how different it is from you. And honestly, having a a moment every single day where your jaw drops is just something that is a real thrill. It's just really a learning curve. And I ended up actually having a Japanese boyfriend uh, for two years. So I saw a side of Japan that most foreigners don't get to. I had access to things like Oban, where they go and honor, their dead relatives. I had access to Oshogatsu, which is the Japanese New Year um, and it, having it with the Japanese family. And it was just it was just so eye opening and just so enlightening. And when I came back to London, I had uh, like a chronic reverse culture shock after being there <laughs> for four years. It was it was really crazy. I missed so many things about it but it's crazy how you assimilate back and again flexibility when you look forward to and love change and London changed me as well back and all then made me different and it was it's just a constant learning curve I think I just like enjoy new things
0: (laughs) yeah and that's brilliant and obviously that's the nature of your work now so you're fluent in Hebrew and in Japanese
1: I think fluent might be overselling my uh, my ability slightly. The Hebrew went away because it was sort of jumped in favour of Irish. And if you're not surrounded by it and you're not practising it, then you're not going to retain it. Although I, I'm sure hypnosis or something would uncover it from a <laughs> filing cabinet in my brain. Perfect. The teachers actually asked myself and my sister to not speak Hebrew to each other, which was really a crying shame because it was such a skill. and when we were in school, I discovered that it was a, a voluntary or an elective leaving cert exam topic that you could take. And so it was such a, a missed opportunity, but it was felt that we should learn Irish. But sure. Japanese, I, still, I can retain a little bit. And as soon as I start to try and think of a, of a, a word in French, i.e. my book French from leaving cert, I, my brain immediately goes to the Japanese word for it. It's, uh, it's very funny. And I'm sure if I went back, I could get by in an airport <laughs> or a convenience store.
0: <laughs> so, well, obviously, the, I think your initial point was that, that you love change. And maybe that is to do with that early experience being in Israel and two years there at six years old is amazing. And yeah. Probably scary at the time, but children adapt. So they do.
1: They do. And I think it's a, a, for me, it's about constant reinvention. There's it's more not of chapters, but of sort of smaller short stories. And I worked in innovation for a while at Volkswagen. Then that's all about contriving and devising new things and creating new things. And I I also became a producer for the Creative Leadership Programme while I was at the BBC, which is all about helping facilitate people through coaching and through creativity techniques to devise new things. So um, I'm starting to identify a pattern here that I've never looked at before, and that is that I just love new, innovative things, situations, people, cultures, languages. I love exposing myself and others to those and having those aha moments or oh my mm. goodness moments where you're ju- you're just blown away by the wonder. So, yeah, it's, it's that really. Curiosity. Exactly. And awe. I read this great article actually recently about how awe and having your child exposed to awesome things really helps their brain development. So bring them to things that will have them in awe or explain things to them that will have them in awe, like the night sky or firework display or something really huge or going up really high in a building and seeing something that's amazing so it's really really good for for kids to experience awe. according to this article which I can I can send you the link afterwards but I think that's I've never grown out of that I
0: just love being in awe
1: of stuff and change the only way that can happen is if you change it up otherwise things get
0: stale so and that's funny because the person I had on the last podcast Lolly Dr Lolly was talking about the science of awe as well so after (laughs) Japan anyway you moved to London. I did. I
1: did. The best 10 years of my life.
0: Right. Wow.
1: A shadow of a doubt. And that was from every aspect, from the career aspect, the social aspect, the friendships aspect, the learning curve aspect, everything. And because you're a renter in London, like you change your dress all the time. So you're yeah. constantly in this flux of change. You never spend too long in one place because housemates change, situations change. But yeah, I went back and uh, it was gas because I did a telephone interview from Japan with a fellow called Nick Shackleton-Jones, and he interviewed me from uh, when I was in Tokyo and he was in London and um, ultimately ended up hiring me to be the graphic designer on the online and informal learning team at the BBC. I always sort of wondered why? <laughs> he just really took a chance on this mad Irish woman ringing in from Japan, like for a job at the BBC, which was all very serious and one thought. And uh, yeah, he just took a, to- a chance on me, liked wh- whatever it was I was selling. And I started there and I couldn't believe my luck. I think my mother shrieked when I told her I had a job at the BBC. She was thrilled. And so it was a really great transition to come back to fly back Knowing I had a role at the BBC that I was walking into, taking a two-week break, sorting out some tax things as you do when you've moved back from Asia after four years, and then starting at the BBC. But it's a big organization, and you know you walk in there and it's it's like oh my goodness, yeah, I'm, I'm at the BBC. It's that's crazy. And uh, you're and I hate when people talk about imposter syndrome, but here we go. But I think I spent the first six years like in constant fear that they were going to find out that I was just what? what are you doing here? What are you doing here? But that never happened. And um, I got promoted to senior designer. I was just designer beforehand. Then I was made senior designer. And then I did an attachment as a senior producer on the creative leadership program, which was run by a uh, an amazing woman called Linda Green, who taught me pretty much everything I know about creativity and creative leadership. And she also took a chance on me and uh, brought me on as a senior producer with her. It was great. I learned a ton, helped people come up with ideas. Then uh, the cost of living took hold. <laughs> and the BBC, while being a fantastic place to work, I was like, OK, we. I think we need to, you know, rethink the strategy here. And I got a consultancy role at a, a, with a group called PA Consulting, also in London. Super fun, but very, very different. Every day was a uh, a sort of a stomach drop day of, oh, my goodness, what's going to come at me? There's the predictability of consultancy is just uh, non-existent. And so you're just in a constant state of reaction or catching up or learning. And it was only after a little while I learned to lean into what I know. They hired me for what I know, lean into what I know and stop having anxiety about what I don't know. And just admit when I don't know something because somebody in the room will know it.
0: So,
1: yeah. And then it was from there, from London, PA Consulting transferred me over to America. And
0: that's how I ended up here. And before you went there, I suppose the fact that you were in that consulting role where you said there was no predictability, you must have thrived on that in some way if you like change and you like. Yeah, I think I did.
1: And I think that's why I'll always credit consultancy with removing, taking me out of the, oh, I'm a designer and I'm creative and start working in more strategic analytical spaces and really helping me actually grow up. And it's not that the BBC didn't grow me up. It did, but I was working in a very, in a discipline and in consultancy, you're expected to react to things and learn as you go. Also, while they hire you and you're put on a job for your expertise, there are secondary and tertiary things are going on around it where you're expected to support. And you want to be a meaningful contributor to any team. And so learning those things to be a meaningful contributor, because uh, one thing I have learned about myself is that I care deeply what people think about me. (laughs) I should probably let go of that a little bit. but I think we all do. I think think we all do. I I just say it out loud. And I wanted to be successful. I wanted to contribute. I wanted people to want me on their team. I wanted to be indispensable. And actually, when I got my first job ever in the world, ever, the last thing my mother said to me before I got out of the car was, "Emir, make yourself indispensable. Make it that they cannot imagine. This situation without you. And it's the best advice anyone has ever given me. I go into every job and I figure out ways to make myself indispensable so that I'm missed when I'm not there. And my advice, my input is missed. And that's my mom. She said that, but along with don't start what you won't finish. (laughs) But the other one served me better. Yeah, it was definitely, every day was a learning curve until I just learned on that curve to stop freaking out about it and just lean into it and realize I'm there for a reason. I don't have to every day prove myself and earn my space. And uh, I think that's something that just comes with age and experience. But yeah, the the change aspect of it was stomach dropping, but in a roller coaster way. Will I, won't I be able to do this? Oh, I, I am able to do it. Every time I am able to do it. So maybe my way and maybe it's different and maybe they wanted it different, but you deliver something at the end
0: and hopefully it's meaningful and useful yeah well if you're you're still there so you're still progressing so presumably it is so then you moved to the states I did I sort of gave uh, it was more of an ultimatum and this is where
1: we get into where the relationships and the work sort of oh, collide I was in a long distance relationship with my now husband at the time and um, we had uh, he was here in virginia and i was in london and it was gosh it was a pretty exhausting time difference and um we decided that we wanted to just finally get together and just at least the very least live together and so i said to pa who had offices in america i'm like look i'm uh, i really want to do this i want to move out to the states and i know it's a, a situation but i'm it's either we do this this way through you or I'm just going to have to uh, detach with love and find somebody or find a way to get out there myself. And they immediately said, "Nope, we'll uh, we'll figure out transferring you. Let's talk, start talking to people. And actually, that was a wonderful endorsement of the fact that I did belong there. And I had sort of made myself indispensable that they had uh, they were willing to do that for me. And I was obviously hugely grateful because they took care of an awful lot of the what would have otherwise have been in very annoying paperwork and I, uh, yeah, I moved out to the States on the first of January in 2016, which was the last flight out before that enormous winter storm hit uh, mm-hmm. hit America. So it was all it was all very meaningful. Yeah, and I started 2016 in America working for PA Consulting, stayed with them on with them for another couple of years. Had wicked good fun going all over the US, serving clients in a US capacity. It was a wonderful experience. And then I moved over to a company called Slalom Consulting, where I also had a wonderful two years. And in that time, myself and my husband got married and I had my son while I was in Slalom. Uh, And then after I got back from maternity leave, I again, detached with love. Thank you for everything. But I am off to Volkswagen where I had been uh, where I had been headhunted for a job over there. It was a bit of a roller coaster of the 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 years because that was only I was only what three years in at that point and there was so much change that had happened and uh, the biggest of which was probably having a kid. If I'm honest, that was that's probably mm-hmm. the biggest stomach drop you'll ever
0: experience.
1: <laughs> All change aside, but in a great way, in a great, in a tiring but a great way.
0: And what was that like then?
1: It was. I mean, obviously having Joe, his, his name is Joe, it was fantastic. I was late to the party with Joe because I was actually 41 when I had Joe and I had gone through a round of IVF because it, whatever we were doing wasn't working. You know, there was a, they discovered that I, there was a few, there was a situation going on in there and, you know, they fixed it and whatever. And then I went through a round of IVF, which failed and that was devastating and I was changing jobs from PA to slalom. My health insurance no longer covered rounds of IVF. And so I was just really, I was bereft, actually. Um, I was like, that's it. That's it's gone. The opportunity is over. When I got to slalom, I wrote a business case for them to introduce the coverage of IVF and fertility treatments into their health insurance for women, because it simply was, it seemed Dreadful to me in my very emotional state of being unable to try again. That uh, this was unavailable from on, because of administration, mm-hmm. and so I wrote a business case. And it was uh, honestly, I, I didn't leave anything on the table. I put every part of me, sweat, tears, the whole lot, into that business case because again, I was coming down off of the disappointment of the IVF round, which was in. I discovered in December that uh, I wasn't pregnant because of IVF, and. Um, wrote this business case, handed it to uh, a wonderful lady uh, called Christine Rolls, who was the general manager of uh, of Slalom. And she took it from me and she said, Eimear, I have this now. I have this. There's nothing more you can do. There's nothing more you can do. So you need to relax and step down and chill. And that was February. And I was pregnant in March. <laughs> Because Christine has, I credit her. Actually, Christine is is actually the third parent of this child. Because uh, I credit her with getting me into a mental space where I allowed it to happen. Because you know, studies show that the more stressed you are about these things, the less likely they are to happen. Because you're you're in a heightened state of whatever. And I I don't know the chemistry, but uh, stress bad is essentially the Mm -hmm. the message. And she. In that one meeting where she took the business case, and she was so meaningful and intentional about taking the business case with two hands and saying, I have this now. I have this, and I'm amending it to remove all of your tear stains, (laughs) your verbal tear stains from this. And I will take it from here. I've got the baton. You relax, step down, and step back, and just chill out. And it was the best thing and It was what I needed. It was I needed to feel like I'd handed it to somebody who was going to care for it and move it forward. And I, I, my piece was done, and hopefully that something would happen. Yeah, the following month I got the news from my endocrinologist when my I was feeling a bit odd that I was six weeks pregnant. And I'll never forget going for that first scan and seeing the pixel, one pixel moving for his heartbeat. And they were like, "We won't find a heartbeat because it's too early," and there was one pixel just going left and right. Crop side to side and there that was the heartbeat and I was I was just oh my god I was so happy I was so happy and then obviously they tell me I'm a geriatric mother and I need to have all of these tests I'm high risk and oh my goodness all of the the stuff and everything was a was stressful but he's perfect and he came out perfect and no matter what they tell you 41 is not too old the sort of the wrap up to this story is that quite a while after I'd left slalom a lot of the, a few of the people who were my very good friends got back with me and said an announcement was made at a, a recent event that fertility treatments are being covered by mm. health insurance at Slalom. And they, uh, a lot of people thought of me and, you know, it was very emotional to hear that. And to, I don't know if what I did made a difference. I really don't. These things move slowly. I have no idea. But I like to think that I had some small part or played some small part. Yeah, you know, I'm sure he did, you know, for sure. It, making it better for women coming after me who, and which is what we all aspire to do, you know, leave it better than you found it type thing. So that's, uh, that's I guess, why I'm in user experience.
0: Leave it better than you found it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Joe arrived after after all of that. He
1: did, he yeah. did. And
0: my husband has been married before,
1: so he's got four other boys. And uh, the deal that we struck was that he would stay home, he'd be the stay at home parent and I would be, I would work. And it, it seemed on paper to be a great idea because I had just started at Volkswagen and you want to make a good impression, make yourself indispensable, all that good stuff. Uh, So after taking maternity leave, and I think I took six months in total, most of that on page because hashtag America, I went back to work briefly at Slalom, wrapped up and then started at VW. My husband was home, Al was home with Joe, and I was going out to work every day and i I found that tougher than I ever expected i would and um I was so just i was just so in in love with this little this little uh-huh. baby, oh my goodness, he was just perfect, and he was so al al and I both felt such a, like you're a miracle you are an absolute little miracle, you know you by all reasons you shouldn't be here because it it was just trial and error constantly. I was obsessed with him. And even though I wasn't that far away, being your head's just not in the game when your baby's at home. And I had six months with him. Can you imagine women who have to go back after eight weeks? Or, yeah, yeah, it was tough. But it actually turned out grand because Joe has a wonderful relationship with his dad. He he would have anyway, but um, they're very close. And he's a well-rounded little fellow. And Al missed out an awful lot of his other kids' younger lives because he has he was in the US military and he was away on deployment or he was very early mornings and or he was out of the country on whatever mission and so he didn't get to see a lot of that and now he had he had a day by day blow by blow watching Joe grow up and just being like in awe back to awe full circle at this little fellow and all the things he achieves in a day-by-day basis so yeah he's four now in preschool and uh So, yeah, we're all just now pootling along and um, we're both back at work now. Joe's in preschool and we have a good cadence. And uh, yeah, he's uh, he's, of course, a little joy.
0: So (laughs) so this is your new sort of path now. You're a mum and you're working full time and in a new role. Yeah.
1: And it's the whole sort of like my husband travels with his job and it's a You want to be, I think I have, I recently learned about superwoman syndrome, where you want to do everything and be good at everything you do. And it's really exhausting because you just can't be. I could do better in all these other areas, but you, you can do what you can do. And I'm looking at my phone because work is emailing me. It's not that I'm, you know, doom scrolling or anything, but it's hard. It's tough being, trying to do it all. It's uh I would say it's actually impossible. You can't do it all. You can't do it all at, and not have a cost to yourself and your mental health. And it's, yeah. Um, I think you, you have to share the burden or at the very least take the pressure off yourself to achieve so much. So I go to work, I do what I can, try to sustain a work-life balance, give as much of myself and my husband too, that we can to to Joe, be present, be around and know that he's fine and he's okay and we are not hopefully screwing him up
0: <laughs> sure, I'm sure, yeah sure everybody everybody worries about that but there's um the opposite of the superwoman syndrome I, I've heard a lot of people talking about the good mum ever hear of that mm-hmm. so that's the other side of it that you can you can only yeah. be good enough you can do absolutely everything I
1: think that's a mental struggle with yourself though isn't it because everyone's parameters of what is good enough is different, which is what leads yeah. to women's syndrome. Because if your standards are really high and, you know, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I'm also a closer finisher. That's actually the advice from my mom: Don't start something if you're not going to finish it. I'm a closer finisher. I Even if I hate a series on Netflix, I will see it through to the end because I can't leave things half done. It's just, uh, it's something that it's not in my nature. It's all about like... Dialing down that perfectionism, I guess, and having a new definition of good enough, because good enough for me is when it's all perfect. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Which is uh, which, mm. which careers me dangerously into superwoman syndrome. And I just want to, at times, I literally just want to sit down and eat a, eat a bag of tato and, and not think about it.
0: It's <laughs> that sometimes. It sounds like, like you need Somebody to. Somebody post me over
1: some tejo, please. <laughs> <laughs> I always come back to Ireland and I think I'll always plan to retire there or come home at some point because I'm always slightly nostalgic for it I'm actually learning fiddle right now I bought a, fi- a violin and at 45 and three-quarter years old I'm slightly late to the party but
0: <laughs>
1: on, a, on some sort of wave of post St. Patrick's Day Irish <laughs> Ferver, <laughs> I bought a fiddle um, and I'm doing lessons now so I it's never really left because I, I love traditional Irish music and always have
0: well, my my mom has been learning the Bayron for the last few years so you're never too that's late hilarious. To, to take that's hilarious <laughs> what advice would you give to anyone who wants to make any sort
1: of a change oh my goodness my first piece of advice is don't fear it, embrace it and i remember i remember the seeing this quote you know you see memes and you're like oh my goodness that's such an inspirational quote but you know it's only ever as meaningful as the moment that you're in in your life and i guess there was this one point, I think, where I was making a change or I was going to make a change or I was afraid to make a change. And, uh, I saw a, this quote and it said, what if you fall? And then the next sentence said, oh my dear, what if you fly? Yeah. And so if anyone is worried about making a change, it's because your own negative self-talk is giving you the worst case scenario. Cause that's psychology. That's what our brains do. It's a protection mechanism. But we're not running from tigers here, folks. You can fly. And I would just say, ask yourself, what if I crush and succeed at this? And don't be afraid of change. Embrace it because it actually rewires neural pathways in your brain and it keeps you young. It change staves off dementia. I mean, don't quote me on that, but (laughs) I'm fairly sure that rewiring neural pathways is like Sudoku. And if you hate numbers like me, change is better. So I would say embrace it because what if you fly? And that's the mindset that I've brought to every change I've had to avoid fearing it. I think people who want to travel, do it. If you have the means, do it. If you don't have the means, find a cheap way to do it. Like, find, go the long way around, take a, get yourself to mainland Europe and take a train fly one place and then hire a car, motorbike, take public transport. America is a big country. There's plenty to see. Don't fear it. It's a big world. There are, there's dangers everywhere, but what are you going to do? What if you fly? So. Yeah. And
0: that's a lovely sentiment. And obviously you have flown and you've, you've done lots of that. I
1: believe that the choices I've made and the decisions that I've made have been the making of me and have shaped me into the person I am now. And while I want to be liked, <laughs> I probably, ironically, can't change. <laughs> yeah, so, you can't
0: control that.
1: So I'm at the point of, you know, take me or leave me. And um, this is it. And this is what you got. But it's a product of a lot of change and a lot of disparate parts and a lot of advice from many, many people. And some of the people who I've talked about here, not least my mom. Yeah, for people who are thinking about changing jobs or their their work or they're starting and embarking on a new career just make yourself indispensable it's words to live by because it first of all it feels great to be appreciated and if you make yourself indispensable you'll be appreciated when especially when you're not there you'll be sought out for your wisdom for your input for your feedback and uh, it, that also feels good to know that your opinion is valued so just uh, give it your all go, go and and do things you want to do It's like, if you can be like a rugby player, a professional rugby player, they love what they do and they make money doing it. Just try and love what you do and do what you love. And that's the best advice I can give anyone thinking of making any kind of change. It'll be less painful if it's something that you want. Although photojournalism is not on the horizon for me, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Not
0: yet. Um, Late to the game. (laughs) And I presume the maybe one of the reasons change is easier for you or you become more accustomed to it is from your experience with coaching and creative leadership and being able to helping other people to do that work to see new possibilities and new opportunities that you're rewiring your own brain to be able to to do that
1: right and you know you you know this there is nothing more satisfying than watching somebody have a breakthrough than watching somebody Find a way through something that they previously thought was inaccessible. Or when you are faced with a group who have a how can I or how might I challenge statement question where they're trying to overcome and solve a problem, and you work through that with them using a technique. And then you get the what we call, refer to as zoo noises. You get that, oh, 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 because it's, they're so delighted by what they've heard because it's <laughs> new. If they've never heard it before, it's so crazy, it might just work and it's delightful. And that's how our brain reacts. And as soon as, if you're trying to solve a problem and you hear the zoo noises in the room, you know that you're in a, what we refer to in creative leadership as the area of discovery. You've left the, familiar, the area of familiarity where we imitate, we don't innovate and you're into the area of discovery. And it's very simply identified by zoo noises and people, and you can feel the energy in the room raising because the people are excited by the prospect and the actualization of this really novel approach that they're hearing. And that is innovation. And so that's extremely satisfying and watching people change and embrace change because they're so excited by the prospect of doing it differently. And you always get people in the room who are resistant, but they can sometimes get carried along on a wave of energy. That's uh, that's also delightful. So. Yeah. But, you know,
0: this from coaching also, it's, it's just like, yeah, wow. So much there. And I think your approach to change is really refreshing because anybody else that has been on the podcast has, has talked about the fears and the decisions and you seem to love all that. So, so that's such a great way to be. And I would love to be a bit more like that myself, I am to a certain extent I'm getting better at it but yeah it's great to be naturally a little bit a little bit that way inclined. So where can people find you if they want to find out more about creative leadership or or get in touch with you? So
1: my website is um, I was so delighted
0: when I discovered that I could buy
1: an Indian domain because it ends in .in which is the last letters of my name so you can find (laughs) me at EmermacPole.in because my name is Emer McPollin or just uh, just google Emer McPollin and also my email address is emackpollin at uh, me.com. There's a some creative leadership content on my website although it's mainly about me it's a very navel-gazing website it's all about me and my achievements and my CV and all that sort of stuff but there's one little part for Uh, creative leadership, where I socialized uh, some content after a presentation I gave. So, by all means, fill your boots. And yeah, happy to answer any questions about creative leadership or creativity or creative principles and techniques or coaching if anybody has is thus inclined or change, even or how I love it. I'm happy to talk about that too. I'm happy to talk
0: really in general, Alain. <laughs> <Right. laughs> OK, well, thanks so much, Emer and best of luck with motherhood and your current job and the juggle and being and being good enough, whatever that is defined as. And um, yeah, lovely to chat to you. Lovely to chat to you too, Elaine. It's
1: been so fun. Thank you so much indeed.
0: Thanks to my lovely guest today and thanks to those of you that listened. If you like this episode, please share or tell a friend. I'll be back next time to talk to another amazing lady who has reinvented her next chapter.